that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola, coming to you today along with the man they call the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, the notorious P.O.B., Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. And we have a very, very special episode for you today, one that I have been hoping we would do for a long time. And the reason that we waited so long is because uh, this episode will air Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. And yesterday, Monday, the 28th of June, 2021, marked the 50th anniversary of a very unique episode in Italian-American history, and actually one that I think far too often is overlooked, not just in the history of Italian America, but in the history of our institutional community and the organs that were built around this time 50 years ago to create a community with a unified voice. And that is the story of Joe Colombo and the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And for those of you who may not know this history, the reason I think it's so interesting is because Joe Colombo, a reputed mob boss in the late 1960s, creates this Italian-American Civil Rights League, which goes on to become one of the more powerful organizations in the country for Italian-Americans and really the first to bring together people from all over the country to create a unified voice on political issues, on anti-defamation, on issues in terms of how we're portrayed in the media. And, and we'll get to talk about all these things over the course of the next two episodes. So on this sort of 50th anniversary, I thought it'd be really exciting to dig into an uncharted piece of Italian-American history that I think has far more impact than it ever gets credit for. And to do that, we're very lucky to be joined by an author who I'm a big fan of, and we've wanted to get on the show for a long time. So I'm very excited for him to come on in just a little bit. But uh, yeah, Pat, you know how obsessed I am with the Italian-American Civil Rights League and Joe Colombo and, and what it means to our community today. So uh, I'm excited about this one. How about you? Is that my moniker now, the Italian-American Wikipedia? Yeah, so people have been calling you. But why Wikipedia and not encyclopedia? Because Wikipedia has, uh, I think, I think the implication is that you can really find anything. I think there's stuff that you find in Wikipedia because it's source-driven and people can put their own stuff that would never be in the actual encyclopedia. There's a sort of trivial, and I mean that in the positive sense of trivia, the word trivia, there's sort of a trivial element to Wikipedia that I don't think exists in encyclopedia. Do you know why I'm happy with that title and why I'm sticking with it? Because for a lifetime, I collected knowledge that people thought was worthless. That's true, yeah. And here it has value. So when, when I would ask these Italian people a million questions about when they came to America or how their grandmother cooked the scuttle or whatever, why do you care? Why are you interested in this? Why would you waste your time on this? And it, it gets disheartening because you figure like, you know. But now I'm in a venue where this has value. And I think that for the people out there, that's why if you're the one spending thousands of dollars on family genealogy and everyone thinks you're crazy and who cares, or, you know, you're spending all that money to have a picture redone or restored 
or you make the road trip to find the factory in middle of America where your great grandparent worked. Don't listen to the people who don't appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. Tune them out. You're on the right track. That's coming from me. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's part of what gets me excited about a topic like today, actually, because we as a community, we've talked about this ad nauseum on the show. We have this false sense that we're great inward looking historians, be it about the community experience or the family experience individually. But in reality, if you really look at the historical record, we've done a pretty bad job of codifying and preserving a lot of aspects of our history. There's so many deep cuts that people don't really know about. We have this sort of very hegeographical overview of, you know, came here as struggling immigrants and got into the cities and worked in factories and worked their way up and valued education. And, you know, there's some very accessible stuff that you can read that tells you that you burst that bubble pretty quick. It's, it's really a much more complex and multifaceted history in the Italian-American experience. And one of the chapters that's always been inspiring to me, frankly, is the chapter of Joe Colombo and the Italian-American Civil Rights League, because there's two reasons for it. First and foremost, my grandfather, who was a teamster in the 60s and 70s, was present at both of the Italian-American Unity Days that occurred in 1970 and 71. And so June 28th, 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the second Unity Day, which has obviously got historical implications. And he always talked about what it was like to be in Columbus Circle with what felt like a million Italian-Americans in this show of unity. And then as I got older, I found Nick Pileggi's 1971 article, The Red, White, and Greening of Italian America in New York Magazine, about how impactful it was for the community to see a unity day, because we had this sense that we were this community dedicated to education and progress and Really, we weren't up until that point, and uh, that, that, that turned the whole table for me. So I'm really excited about this episode, and I'm very, very pleased that we have with us today Don Capria, who is the author with Joe Colombo's uh, now-departed son, Anthony, of Colombo, The Unsolved Murder, which is the story of Joe Colombo, a big part of which is the Italian-American Civil Rights League and his work as a community leader. So Don, we've been talking about doing this for a long time. I'm glad we could get you to join us. Welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. We're really pumped. And Don, you're a, a filmmaker, a, a writer. You've been working on a bunch of interesting projects. I'd love to learn more uh, down the road about your project Westchester because uh, it's an area that fascinates me. It's where my wife and I are gearing up to move. But how did you end up co-authoring this book with a figure who plays so prominently in the story in Anthony Colombo? So I, I just got introduced at an event uh, two nights ago by the man that put me in place with Anthony Colombo. And it was an interesting introduction. He said, I, I was looking for a writer for the book and I had the agent Mickey Freiberg and I had Anthony Colombo. And we were just trying to find someone that we thought was a fit. And through a friend, through a friend, through a friend, through a friend, I get on the phone with this guy, Don Capria. And he says, I, you know, take the call and I say, so, uh, you know, tell me what books have you written? I was like, I haven't written any books. Well, all right, well, what films have you done that I know? He's like, I haven't done any films either. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm, I direct music videos, and I'm currently directing a pilot. And he's just like, ah. and he thought the call was over. And we stayed on for a little while longer, and he was convinced that I needed to at least take a meeting with them. So he put himself out there and, and uh, had me meet with Anthony. Uh, we went to like a diner in upstate New York. It was Anthony, his son, and, and a few other gentlemen. We all sat down over brunch and discussed the history that I knew about Joe Colombo 
And Anthony didn't give me too much information. I think it was more of him giving me the questions and seeing how far I've dug down the rabbit hole. And after the meeting, they got in the vehicle and Anthony told Ray, he said, that's the guy that's going to write the book. Wow. Ray called Mickey and Mickey said, you know, that's great, but can he write? So I had to do a, a 40 page uh, treatment, which included one of the chapters from the book. And I turned that into the agent, and, you know, run pins and needles for a week. And he calls Ray back up and he says, that's the guy. He's going to write the book. So it was, it was a very random connection to get to Ray. Um, I had always been interested in Joe Colombo's story. I was always a mob aficionado and I've had entertainment based jobs since I was 19 years old, touring musician, then music manager. I think I started getting into telling story through the music video world where I was writing treatments. And then I wanted to get into longer form stories. And the first thing that I had picked up was Westchester, uh, which I shot the pilot for. And during that time, I really noticed that I, I, I fell in love with long form story. So the Columbo book was the next big project that I had after that. And that took about three years to compile and was released about five years ago. And the story's shooting yeah, 50 years ago this month. And it is really interesting to me. I'm a big numbers guy that, you know, 50 years later, the calendar, and I need to do a deeper study on this, but it's again, Monday, June 28th, exactly as it was 50 years ago. I don't know if a mathematician would look at me and go, yeah, of course it is. Every 50 years, it's going to yeah, land I don't know either. That's <laughs> a know? great question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is amazing to think that that's why I was so excited about this because I looked down at the calendar and like you realized it was 50 years to the day. And I channel a lot of my Italian American experience through when I can kind of picture my family participating in stuff. And so, you know, I have this vision and I've become really obsessed with this chapter and to be, you know, really honest, I, I got the book. I think I pre-ordered it when it was coming out. I remember finding you guys on social media and getting really excited. And it is a phenomenal book. It's a very, very enjoyable read. You did a great job with the complex story. But I've, I've been shocked there's not more out there on this. I mean, you have to go back to historical sources, the old magazines, the newspapers. And I've spent probably, I don't know, 10 years buying up whatever I can through auction sites and eBay and, you know, God willing, you find things at like a yard sale because I'm in Brooklyn and there's just not that much out there. So it's amazing that it's 50 years later and this story is just really opening up to a whole community at a time when our community is more, I think, inward looking than ever. Because we notice that Pat and I talk about it all the time with the show. A lot of our audience is people who grew up Italian American, maybe in a different version than we did. And they're looking backwards, trying to fill in the blanks. And I find that the community is hungry for this stuff. So it's really amazing confluence of events 50 years later. Um, as I say, the episode, the story is a complex one. Before I ask you to kind of set the stage with an overview of the Joe Colombo story, how did you go about sourcing for the book? Was it, you know, what kind of interviews, what kind of research, what did it take to get this story out? It was a hybrid um, because there was no real direction in the beginning for how the voice, I did the chapter and was submitted and they liked the actual writing, but I didn't know if that was going to be the voice of the book. So, um, you know, in the beginning, I really wasn't writing pages down. I was just kind of gathering information and I was going to see what that compiled to. And then from there, break it down and say, okay, I have enough information to write the book stylistically like this. And, you know, I had comparative titles that I liked, you know, this was also my first book. So, I, I, again, I had no real direction and 
when Anthony introduced me to people, it was great because I had access to folks that would never speak to anybody about this. One, they're really difficult to get to. And two, you know, it's just a situation where they just don't want to be bothered about it or just feel they don't want to talk. And Anthony was very clear with me also that even with his involvement in organized crime after his father's death, he wanted to tell a story that would start at the time that he was born until the time that his father was hospitalized a few months after the shooting had happened. And from that time until that time, Anthony believed that his father was not involved in organized crime. And he wanted to be you know, very firm on that. But he also gave me the free will to go ahead and interview people that knew his father as a gangster. He said, listen, if you can source the information, you can print it in the story. So we arrived at a story that is kind of, it's almost like three different voices coming out of the book. One would be Anthony Colombo's father-son story. The second would be my depiction of Joe Colombo as a civil rights activist and as a gangster and as a family man. And then I did small vignettes, which were kind of visual stories from factual evidence that I pulled out that I wanted to dress up. And I did that to modernize the book some because I felt it made it for a faster read and it kept things more interesting. And also as a filmmaker, I'm more of a visual writer. But the research, the people that I got to meet, as far down as you're going to dig, you're still going to get some really good no pay dirt. And um, I found some people that it was amazing because it was totally unexpected. And then there were some people that the interviews were actually set up. So, you know, everyone from Al Ruddy, who was the producer of The Godfather, to Connie Francis, who was a singer that was at... You got to uh, speak with Connie Francis? I got to speak to, you know, people ask that question. That is the highest accomplishment. (laughs) It is true. So, So, you know, like, they always have that thing, like, who's the coolest person in your phone? I, I guess for me, it might be Connie Francis, you know, um, you meet celebrities, but this is old, this is old school, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's definitely cool. So, you know, Barry Slotnick was another person that was a contributor, Dick Capazzola, Steve Aiello, you know, guys that were involved in the league. And then I also got gentlemen that remain unnamed that I got to go down to Brooklyn and get to meet with these guys and get some inside scoop and some, some dirt on the, on the federal side, the agents refused to speak to me. Albert Seidman did not comply. My agent, you know, he tried to set up the interview. Albert Seidman was still alive at the time. But I, I did land a gem, which was Giuliani Schiozzi, who was the officer that actually tackled Jerome Johnson and slammed the gun out of his hand. Wow. Um, and then rode with Jerome Johnson to Roosevelt Hospital, where he passed away and was in the room with him when Albert Seidman came in. So, it, there, and that one was the most random digging possible that led me to a little it was just down the rabbit hole and and i've always done that anyway with youtube and you know you, you're given the free will and the time to collect this evidence and you know you just go you go for it and sometimes you know you're seven eight hours into a trail and then all of a sudden you find something it's really amazing to me because when we first started cooking up this episode which has been on my mind for years now so we've been involved in the podcast over two years and once I realized it was going to be 50 years, I said, okay, I'm going to save this. And so we talked about what we would do. And obviously the first call we were going to make was to you. And I met a gentleman who was involved with the civil rights league as a, as a leader and is still very prominent. And we talked about it for a couple hours about my excitement, my passion about the history, my theories on it. And uh, he didn't want to come on the mic and it dawned on me you know, the podcast has now existed since the book came out, 2015. We were sort of born at the same time. And we've been involved for 
a little over two years now or coming up on two years now. And we've never done much coverage between the original host or ourselves on anything that had to do with the mafia. And there's been conversations with Tom Santapietro about like the Godfather effect early on in the show and things like that. But it's been a topic that everybody still all these years later kind of tiptoes around. And the reason I'm so excited to tell the story is because I still don't feel like it's a mafia story. I feel like it's a civil rights story. It's an Italian American community history. It's a personal story. There's so many aspects to it that tie deep into Italian American history between its impact on the Godfather and the idea that a community starts to form an institutional community after the two, three years that this uh, Italian American civil rights league exists. I, I find it a, a very unique and complex story. And so before we really go into details, could you set the table for us for the uninitiated in our audience and sort of explain a little bit, not so much Joe Colombo's life, but Joe Colombo as a figure and the Civil Rights League and the sort of overarching story of it, if you could. Yeah, I mean, he, he had always been someone that was interested in Italian-American activism. There was a group, uh, I think it was AID, and it was like the predecessor to the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And what a lot of people didn't know was that that was started by Joe Colombo. But at the time, Joe Colombo felt that he could not be involved with it, you know, on paper or publicly. So he had appointed people to run that for him. Uh, and he noticed, I think that was started in 1966 or 67. Yeah. And he had noticed that after a couple of years, uh, they weren't really doing anything. It was just kind of, you know, titles and uh, events. And it was, you know, they didn't want to shake the foundations of society. A lot of guys were politicized. They were doctors and lawyers. So, you know, Joe sat on the sidelines and he had helped fund a lot of it. And he saw there were things happening within the community that he thought needed action. And it, it got to him, you know, got to him for quite a few years. And, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was when his son was arrested by the FBI. And he felt that it was trumped up charges. He felt that, well, he felt the son was completely innocent and he had, you know, questioned him thoroughly and the boy and once he got that, he's like, he went to them and they told him there's really nothing we can do about, you know, and there was all of these cases he had heard about. And I'm sure it was because of his involvement in crime that, that the FBI was overstepping their boundaries and committing crimes to help get people who were committing crimes. And this was something that he, he was completely against fervent and he, he went after them. And that's when he initiated the Italian American Civil Rights League. While that was the impetus and the inciting incident that made this happen, he already had a laundry list of things that he wanted to accomplish. So that's why a lot of people who really knew what was going on thought this was like, it happened so fast. You know, like, look what he did in such a short amount of time. Well, he, he had had that list of things to do and, and how he wanted to establish, you know, the foundation for the community in New York City years prior. He had just never put himself to the task. So it, it's been in him. And, and even through the father-son story, I learned a lot from Anthony about Italian-American history, but Joe knew a lot about the immigration process. Joe knew a lot about historically, a lot of things that no one knew about, everything from, you know, uh, Filippo Mze to William Paca, and, and then hundreds of years later, how there continued to be these historical figures that no one ever spoke about. And this is pre-Wikipedia. Yeah. So where do you find this information if not through anecdotes of your family members? And you know, Joe was a very proud Italian American. And I, I think that 
a lot of people always ask me, what do, what do I think about Joe Colombo? And, and this question may come up again later, but he was just born to be a leader and born to help people. So there's a, a guy, and I've said this in interviews before, this one guy that I met, and I knew he had a lot of FaceTime with Joe around the neighborhood. He was right there on 86th Street. And I said, you know, describe Joe to me. And he said, Joe was the guy that on the street, there would be, you know, Puerto Rican guy and Jewish guy and a black guy and an Italian guy arguing with each other over whatever it could have been garbage or this or that. And Joe would grab them all. He'd walk into a room, they'd shut the door. They'd be in there for 10 minutes and they'd all come out laughing, patting each other on the back, smiling and shaking. And that's a really good description of a human of all these different personality types that we have. He was a fixer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. That's wild that you say that because that's a thesis that we still encounter today a lot in the community, which is we as a community don't have a phenomenon. We don't still, 50 years later, have a great ability to go into a room, have a disagreement with an understanding that we have to come out with a unified voice. We have to come out with a coalition of organizations and individuals with one message, one strategy. And it's, you know, particularly, I think it's safe to say for those of us who have been either raised around or participated in the institutional version of the Italian-American community, the groups, the summits, we have this syndrome where everybody kind of likes their fife and everybody wants to make sure they get their face time and who's the leader and who made the decisions. And it has been to our detriment for many, many years. And, you know, you bring up the AID, uh, which is another fascinating chapter in our history because it started as the American Italian Anti-Defamation League. Yes. uh, 1967. And, Frank Sinatra is the honorary chairman. That's one of my favorite pieces of my collection is a poster from that event, actually. And pretty quickly, because of leaders like Joe Colombo behind the scenes and the, the work that's done to get everybody on the same page, it's unprecedented to have a, a national Italian-American group. And they have this massive concert that Sinatra puts on in MSG, raise a lot of money. And of course, they get, I guess, sued by the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, yeah. right, for the, for the yep. name, which takes a bit of a, a bump on the road. and like you say, it's a few years later, 1970, 1969, I guess, when Anthony Colombo was arrested for what, melting down nickels or something like that? Something crazy? Yeah, it was Joe Jr., actually. Oh, it was Joe Jr., um, excuse me. Yeah, and he was arrested for, they made it a federal crime because he was melting down U.S. coin. And again, completely innocent of the charges, knows the person that was involved. It was a kid that was trying to get in trouble. He, he spoke that the FBI coerced him to make up the story and you know nothing happened to make those guys accountable for what they did. But this was a tactic that was happening all over New York City at the time. The organized crime task force that was put in place only to investigate, you know, the FBI had no, I don't even, I I would say, you know, maybe it was the 80s, but I don't even think they had a leg of organized crime investigations until the 1980s for other ethnic groups. It was just completely only, we're only looking for Italian Americans who have organized crime groups. While there's gambling and prostitution and loan sharking and illegitimate businesses in every culture, you know, yeah. 
And I'm not saying let's investigate more, but what, what I am saying is for many, many years, decades, uh, probably 50 years, it was only focused on Italian Americans. And Joe saw what they were doing to people and, and especially the immigrants. And he knew the plight, you know, he knew what people had gone through to even get, you know, a home, whether it was a rental or if it was their own house and to have stuff like that taken away and relatives sent back to Italy just because they were related to someone. And, you know, they were a major disruptor in the Italian American community at that time. And I kind of like the idea of addressing a history that has aspects of the mafia, which is this in some parts of our community, this big sort of don't speak about it. It didn't exist or, you know, because there's a sort there's a sort of honor amongst thieves, right? Like, you know, it's fair to be playing this kind of cat and mouse game in a way with the federal agencies and stuff. But when they start using tactics that are, uh, I don't want to say illegal because obviously organized crime is, is in its essence illegal, but they're changing the game board. They're making it unfair. And, I, and the fact that he found that and was able to highlight and, and, and organize around that, it quickly becomes the most important and prominent organization for a community that is, I don't even think aware at that point, how much it needs a national organization to do these things. And so you talk about him having this pre-Wikipedia, pre-internet, encyclopedic understanding of the Italian-American experience, how it was impacting people, having this real concern for how it was impacting people. And one of the first things that he does when he creates this Italian-American Civil Rights League is go after the early stages of the film, The Godfather, right? And, and, and the show, The Untouchables as well. Can you talk a little about what impact Columbo and the Civil Rights League have on what becomes probably the seminal film in the Italian-American experience in The Godfather? Yeah, they, they were definitely doing things in different areas. And in the mainstream media, these things were the ones that got the most attention. Um, while they were probably not the hard or the arduous tasks that they were trying to accomplish, um, but definitely the more press-worthy. So at the time, this was a major event. This was uh, 1971, I believe. They had learned that the book was going to be turned into a movie, and producers had come to New York City and started location scouting. They, they had a location in Long Island. They had multiple locations in Little Italy. And there were some discussions back and forth about how the book was going to depict Italian-Americans because the rumors that were going around with this, you know, you have a Jewish producer, a Jewish studio head, uh, they hear Robert Redford's going to be playing Michael Corleone. They hear all, all these different stories going back and forth. And it's just, they had seen, you know, some pretty poorly made Italian American gangster movies. Um, I think the one was most recently was with, uh, Kirk Douglas and they just didn't like the, the caricatures that they were creating. And no one really knew who Coppola was at the time. He was pretty much an unheard of director. So Joe wanted to sit down with the producers and, and have a discussion and, you know, get a copy of the script and go through it and talk about casting, talk about locations, talk about authenticity. And no one wanted to answer the call. Um, so there's, there's rumors on that side that there was, you know, these they were shooting up cars in Los Angeles and, you know, really trying to extort the, the film. And, well, I, I don't know any of that stuff to be factual. I, I do know that after speaking to Al Ruddy, what it was that actually got them together. I think one of the major incidences was a theft of a Cinemobile truck, which I wrote about. They were scouting in Little Italy. They were about to have lunch and they had this giant truck with all these brand new lenses and whatnot. And they go have lunch and they come back and the truck's gone. And, you know, that was, I, I don't know I, I, who did it. It was interesting to me. I would have loved to have known. But I think that was one they were like, okay, maybe we're not safe here. But the main one was when the unions told them that they weren't going to cooperate. Um, so there was going to be a chokehold. And when 
Ruddy found that out. And when Coppola found that out, that they needed to meet with Colombo to have the cooperation with the community. And then all of a sudden, the house in Long Island was gone and locations in Little Italy were gone. It came to Evans and Evans was like, you know, he had all this information on his desk. He's like, Francis, let's go to Hollywood. Let's shoot this thing on a lot here. And Francis Ford Coppola was like, you shoot it on a lot in Hollywood. I'm not shooting this film on a fake lot. So he bucked. Ruddy stepped up in a major way and was like, I'll talk to Joe Colombo. So he comes into New York and he didn't know it was going to be a big press conference. I think he got blindsided by how the league was going to use this to their advantage publicly. So they sat down, they had a meeting, they reviewed the script, uh, and then they announced that they were going to be working together in some capacity to organize this with, a, you know, not a co-production, but just a joint effort with the community. And once that happened, Bloodhorn fires Ruddy, uh, and the movie starts falling apart immediately. And, you know, Bob Evans wants all the credit, but none of the hard work. So he's not flying to New York to fix this. And without Ruddy, there was no Coppola. Wow. So they, they needed to keep that team in place. So Bloodhorn, a man who does not compromise, needed to compromise to make the film. And, you know, marketing-wise, that film saved Paramount. Paramount was declining and it was over. Um, you know, if you, you look at their numbers, after The Godfather, that company was complete a complete resurgence. So that film in particular, you know, even though there wasn't a major success story that I could tell you of like what they changed in the script – they changed small elements and, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, what's the difference between a $300 hotel and a $1,200 hotel? You know, they're both have a bed. They both have a phone near the bed, lamps, bathroom, but there's all these little elements and there's all these different dressings and there's this character that's there. And after interviewing Al Ruddy, you know, he, he made the quote and he says, this Godfather that we have today would not have been the same Godfather without Joe Colombo. You know, everything from the introduction of the Luca Brazzi character, which was an Italian-American wrestler, Lenny Montana, who they caught on set, you know, a, a happening. And they said, we got to put this guy in the movie. To Gianni Russo playing Carlo, who was brought in by Joe Colombo. The house in Staten Island, the locations and the extras, the detail. There was a lot of details that, uh, and, and I give a lot of credit to Coppola also, who, you know, they, they were very right on, on hiring him because he was masterful in creating a masterpiece when no one thought that he could do it. He was hired because he came cheap. <laughs> um, that was the reason why they picked him. So that film's accomplishment, while it's in minute details, on the side of being able to work with a master company, it was, uh, it was just, it was something, it was the, the pin that you put the highest as far as what did the league do? Mm. Because they stopped it. They stopped a major motion picture from being produced. And I found it fascinating that the studio, only after this interaction with Columbo, takes out references to mob and mafia, right? They're forced to tell the story in a sophisticated way. And they're forced, I think, like you say, through the details, through the authenticity, to tell, as Pat always says, what is really a story of, of family love with a patina of their organized crime background. It's not a stereotypical mob movie it's not lazy it's like you say you know robert redford's not playing michael corleone and uh, you don't have the sort of kirk douglas doing an impression of something he doesn't understand you have this deep authenticity i remember when john maggio did his amazing documentary on the italian american experience on pbs uh, i remember watching the portion that, that covers this and they spoke to antonin scalia when he was still alive and he said you know I didn't grow up 
in a family like this at all. But watching that movie, they had the same plates that my grandmother used and the lighting was the same as her house. There was such a an authenticity and a detail to it. And I, I can't for the life of me think that that would have been the case if not for the pressure from an organized Italian-American community with a leader like Joe Colombo. And that organized Italian-American community wouldn't have existed without Joe Colombo. And that that's kind of the thing that I keep coming back to. People take for granted that we've been a sort of self-identified community. But until the late 1960s and 70s and the work of this very complex and interesting figure, we weren't. And so stuff just happened above us and we had no seat at the table. And it's the great dichotomy in my mind that this guy who's involved in what many of us sort of think of as like our original sin in this country and organized crime is also the first one to bring us to the table with any kind of real unified voice. That's why I love this story. Beyond the, like you say, the, the sort of most recognizable accomplishment in The Godfather, can you talk a little bit about what the League did and, and how it impacted the community and introduce us to this concept of Unity Day? Because I think that's a seminal moment, both 70 and 71. So um, they had begun with doing rallies and going to the FBI offices in Manhattan. I think it was on first day after Joe Jr.'s arrest. And it was important for them to have bodies. You know, that was what they always knew. And that's, that's a union thing, right? It was, it's organization. It's, it's having people show up, you know, show a force. And Colombo knew that he couldn't just keep showing up at the FBI offices and picketing and marching, it was going to get muted. You know, uh, people were just going to be used to it. So he knew that he needed to organize something bigger to show them that this was not going to go away. You know, it, it was, it was definitely chipping at them. And there was actually like, you know, there was a fight one time that they were there and, but he didn't want that. He wanted something where he was recognized as a, as a voice or the community was, you know, and ultimately the, I think one of the biggest things that came out of this was they became a voting block. No one ever looked at the Italian American community that we need to pull for their votes. Um, and once the first Union Day rally happened, that was it. You had Mayor Lindsay, you had Nelson Rockefeller, you had people showing up to these events because we have to pay attention to these people because they're unified. So the Unity Day, in Joe's mind, he knew he needed to create a massive event. Uh, it was something that, you know, Sons of Italy and all these other people did not ever try to do. And Joe knew that if I could put, you know, 50,000 people, 100,000 people uh, to one event, then it's, it's going to be the clearest accomplishment that we could have because the mob rules, you know, there was, I think at the time there was probably, there was AID, there was Chow and there was Sons of Italy. And again, none of those guys had their sights on something this big. So he knew with his connections with the union, he knew with his connections with the people in his community and they had already just started growing chapters. They were, they were starting to move and create leaders within all the other uh, boroughs and then the communities within the boroughs. And he thought, look, we're going to take a Monday. We're going to make it a rally. We're going to make it festive. We're going to have guest speakers. We're going to have musical performances. And they had already set up offices for the Italian American civil rights league and the park Sheridan hotel. So these guys had a president, a vice president, a secretary, they had staff and they had raised small amounts of money so that they can create, you know, it's like <laughs> any event, Lollapalooza, you know, they're working 365 days a year to prepare for this one event. And they were working nonstop in those offices to try to get these small press victories to get more people aware of the program. And also at the same time, leading up to that, they initiated the Wednesday night meetings at the Park Sheridan, where people had this kind of an open mic forum where they could walk in like a town hall meeting and say, Hey, you know, 
my daughter was just in a severe car accident and our insurance is telling us that we're not going to be covered. And like the, for me, you know, reading history, these were the first GoFundMes. Yeah. We're at these Park Sheridan hotel meetings where Joe was just like, okay, let's get her some money. Let's find out who in the community can make some donations and let's get this girl's medical bills taken care of. And then let's get a lawyer on board to help fight this with them and see why the insurance company is not doing their part since things are supposed to be covered. And, you know, he was the fixer. But this rally, this rally had to be massive. It had to be something that the NYPD, that the politicians, that everyone saw. And they had the support of many politicians, even at that first rally. So it was probably bigger than Joe expected. And then if he's a genius, maybe he knew exactly how big it was going to be. But it, I've heard numbers anywhere from you know 75,000 and up. So. Ah, summer. The time to get out and enjoy a little aperitivo picnic. Why not celebrate your Italian-American pride, too, and enter for your chance to win a Mediaset Italia picnic pack to take with you? It's easy. Just snap a pic that says Italian-American to you, post it to Instagram, and tag it with the hashtag IHeartMediasetItalia. Be sure to also follow at MediasetItaliaUSA, and you can win a picnic prize pack sent to you in the mail. New winners will be chosen every week. The picnic prize pack includes a picnic basket and blanket, a meat and cheese board, plates, utensil set, a pair of wine goblets, and a wine opener. Check out and follow at Mediaset Italia USA on Instagram to find out more. And after a long afternoon picnic, return home and enjoy summer entertainment on Mediaset Italia. There are new episodes of Temptation Island, Avanti Un Altro, and Ciao Darwin, and drama series Mazzantonio premieres in July. Yeah. To set the stage for people, because I can only view this through the lens of somebody in research. You know, you've spoken to people. I've spoken to a few people that were there. Um, June 29th, Monday, June 29th, 1970, you have, like you say, numbers range from 75,000. Some people say 150,000. I mean, you can 200, see photos. I've heard it. Yeah. yeah it's a you, sea of heads. Lady Gaga could not do a free show in Central Park and have it be this big right now. It's not happening. No, you're absolutely right. It's impossible. Yeah, there's hundreds, clearly over 100,000 people out there. You look at the photos that exist, and, and amazingly, there's not that much left in terms of footage. It's kind of rare to find, but a sea of red, white, and green, people of all ages, men and women, you've got people clearly from all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, just rallied around this amazing event in Columbus Circle, everything bedecked with the tricolor. And as you point out, amazingly, you got the governor of New York, the mayor of the city of New York. Everybody's fighting for a chance to be there. Colombo was amazing at his outreach to other communities. So you have alliances with leaders from the African-American community, the Jewish community, other groups that are being imposed upon. The Greek community, even, even you know, stores shut down as far as Greenpoint, Brooklyn and the Polish community. You know, it was uh, it was it was everyone. And he was also, you know, um, not to speak about the assassination attempt yet, but, you know, if you look at a lot of historically, a lot of leaders that were killed um, or muted or silenced uh, potentially by a conspiracy, a lot of them were ones that were trying to unify multiple cultures. You know, Fred Hampton, most recently, as we watched in Judas and the Black Messiah, this was a guy who spoke frequently on tape about the Rainbow Coalition and how he wanted to organize blacks and whites and different cultures and communities so that we can work together. And yes, there's photos of Joe with leaders of, uh, I forget, but it was like 
uh, Dr. Thomas Matthew, who was part of a, uh, like a black self-help group out of Harlem and Meyer Kahane. And, you know, Joe did want to create that, the essence of that, putting a couple of people in a room and let's work out our differences because he didn't see community leaders that were in politics doing that. Once you enter the political realm, you have to play politics and who a community organizer you know, their chest is out and they're very firm about making demands for the issues that are at hand. And they don't want to hear about a bridge that needs to be built when we know that there's a young group of kids that are not getting insurance because they're in uh, a fluctuating zone that won't allow them to be insured. You know, like, no, we're going to, we're going to solve this problem and we'll worry about that bridge later. We'll cross that bridge later. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. You know, I always say that that's the thing for me because I, you know, I, not to go off on my own life, but I became the president of the National Italian American Foundation at 28 years old. And it dawned on me very early on in that experience that amongst any ethnic group, right? Because identity politics being what it is, and, and we're a post-assimilation group, and we don't fit into that identity politics uh, realm anymore, really, to the, to the scale that we used to. But any community leader should essentially be working to eliminate the need for themselves, right? Like you should be working to make sure that these issues become issues that um, address everyone in this rainbow coalition, as he says, in this mosaic that is the country. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of going in to defeat identity politics and the negative aspects of it and becoming just another part of that chessboard because it's the fife that keeps you in power or relevant or part of the bigger system. You know, we have this horrible sense I've always felt it in our community and I'm sure it is in every community that like people go in for the right reasons to become community leaders. And then once they get sucked in and accepted into the system of the majority, it's better for them to just have a lot of their own community underneath them, keeping them on top of the hill. You know what I mean? As opposed to saying like, let's eliminate the need for this and actually solve the problems. And I get this feeling that Columbo was in many ways like a Robin hood, you know, yeah, he really did want to solve big problems and little problems and, and felt a responsibility to his community that was unprecedented at the time. Because like you say, there was a, you know, Sons of Italy was founded in, I think, 1905. Wonderful organization, lodges all over the country. But you get comfortable in the idea that like you're the president of a lodge and like this is just how we do things. You get Every year we get this event and, you know, we, we, yeah, we scholarship set up and, you know, it becomes very, um, you know, it's a formula, you know, and yeah. And, and Joe's, not into formula he was into people and, and accomplishments and yeah robin hood description is, is very fitting especially you know the looming behind him this you know or the, or the elephant in the room that he's potentially this massive leader of an organized crime family you know that was always the, the question for me it's like you know was this guy the right guy well you know my answer always is he was the only guy i, I could not agree with you more there was no one else that could make this happen I mean, who would have built all those schools in Colombia? You know, if it wasn't Pablo Escobar, was anybody else was one of those politicians, was a corrupt politician who had tons and millions of dollars funneling through his system doing that? No. Sometimes it has to be these people that have these, uh, you know, divides in what their person does. You know, and, and Joe's dichotomy is, you know, the dynamic of his characters is something that was amazing to explore because, you know, I, I ask myself so many questions about crime and about accomplishment. And, you know, are, are you earnest? Like, what, where, where's the core of your character 
if there's all these different things that you could do in life. And I think, you know, we're, we're holographic beings. Like there's just so much that we can do. You know, at the core, we have our DNA and, and who we were supposed to be, we become in the first seven years. And, but then there's all these different misdirections, like, and, and, and society, you know, sometimes you get forced into situations because you need to complete a task. And as far as the, the crime side went, you know, my investigations, you know, Joe had, a major incident happened to him as a child. And as I uncovered psychologically of you know why he potentially went into the life of organized crime, that whole redemption side of it uh, had a lot to do with his father's murder. You know? Can you tell us that story? No, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's hold on to this one. See how, see, he goes right over me. See, Don, I just plows right over me. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, because this is a great conversation that I want to keep having, but it's going to be two parts for this episode because there's just so much to cover and, you know, we've been able to talk about a little bit on what the league did and its, its history, but with somebody like Don here, who's really an expert on the topic and who's done so much research, I do want us to get into the depths of the personal psychology and the personal story of Joe Colombo, because this is somebody who really, in my mind, is, is like I say, a Robin Hood, an anti-hero for the Italian-American community, and I don't want to shortchange what I think is a really good conversation going forward. So let's save that conversation for the beginning of part two of this two-part episode. I think this has been a really fascinating conversation, Don. We really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to keep going here on the mic and keep this conversation flowing. But if you've enjoyed this one, please make sure to come back next week on Tuesday for part two of this episode on Joe Colombo and the Italian-American Civil Rights League. So from all of us at the Italian-American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italy.